Hello and welcome to Portrait of an Editor. I am Francis Lombard. In part three of my talk with Andy Curry, we wrap up our conversation about the early days of DC's Black Label and move on to his editing chores on DC's relaunch of Vertigo and how he ended up working on the Young Animal pop-up imprint. We also discuss Far Sector and its place in the Green Lantern's mythos. Finally, we talk about the challenges of editing a creator-owned book compared to a DCU book, and we get to the lightning round. Enjoy! Some time's gone by since we recorded the first half of this interview. Congratulations on Far Sector getting a Harvey nomination for Book of the Year. Far Sector was interesting. It was the second sort of wave, for lack of a better term, of the Young Animal pop-up imprint. And I was fascinated with those. I followed that. I think I, I read definitely the Cave Carson one and the Doom Patrol. And I know you edited the second wave of the Doom Patrol series, those seven issues that came out after. And, uh, the, and then there was Mother, Mother Panic. And what else was there? I think that was uh, it. Oh, Collapser was um, also the second Collapser. wave. Yeah, yeah, which I enjoyed. It was just wild comic book. But... Uh, before we started recording, you were saying that these ideas, was it the ideas of the pop-ups that came from from Vertigo? Because I know Shelley Bond was editing the launch of Doom Patrol. And in what I was reading a while back, she was involved in getting Young Animal up and running. I believe that's the case. I mm-hmm. think, I don't know whose idea the pop-up concept was. Um, I mean, DC had had many imprints over the years. Um certainly relative to other publishers. There was, of course, Vertigo, but also Wildstorm. There was CMX. There was Minx for a, a sort of a ahead-of-its-time young young adult, young reader graphic novel line that Shelley was in charge of also. There was briefly a Humanoids uh, imprint at DC. That's what I was um, working on. <laughs> there was a lot of room at DC historically for for imprints to, to present like different, you know, types of books for different audiences. Um, and I think Shelley was definitely on the ground floor of what became young animal. Um, I was in DCU still at that time. There was a big editorial shuffle, a reshuffle is what they call it about two years into rebirth. And that is when they created what became the black label group as well as the what were then called Zoom and Inc., which were the DC young reader groups. One was for young readers, and one was for I think, I'm sorry. There's really specific market terms for these demographics that I don't know. I, I'll probably get it wrong. But one was for slightly older readers, and one was for younger readers. And it was part of a sort of cradle to grave strategy, whereby there would be DC books for different audiences basically all through their life, mm-hmm. you know, from young, from very young readers of the graphic novels to the, you know, I think the idea was that the main line was for kind of all ages, but there's, I think it skews older. There was the books for teens, there was Vertigo books, there was, and then Black Label books, you know, like there was a good, I thought it was a very good strategy. I and some other editors were, were moved over to what became the Black Label Group, operating under Mark Doyle, who had been extremely successful um, 
or successful uh, editor of the Batman line and um, very, very good editor. And he had come from Vertigo originally. That was his original DC editor job. And then he had, you know, moved into the Batman stuff and done very well with it. So the mandate was to create a new line of Vertigo books for what would be the imprint's 25th anniversary, as well as get this black label concept up and running, which was still undefined at that time. There was thinking that black label would be for the biggest names, or there was thinking that black label would be for things that we decided were very special and could support a prestige presentation. Um, Cause you'll remember like the original black label announcements, I think included like books by Frank Miller and John Romita and Brian Azzarello and Lee Bermejo. And, um, <clears throat> You know, there's only <clears throat> so many of, of that sort of, you know, legendary talent around. So um, I know Mark felt this way and I felt this way that we should try to do some proof of concept stuff to show that other less legendary people, but no less talented people could support the label. And now what you see, long story short, now what you see Black Label doing is a mix of things by sort of people like that and also... Uh, newer people um, whose work is really like visionary, I think is a good word for it. Well, I mean, the Black Label originally felt a bit like what they were doing with all-star comics, the all-star Batman, and then definitely the, the all-star Superman with um, Morrison and Quietly, which seemed to really, I don't know, encompass what all-star was for a brief moment was about, about A-list talent taking a stab at, the quintessential heroes and like the re the launches of black hit label had a feel like that. But did you, did you and Mark and the editorial team sort of realize that to keep the attention of A-listers or be able to have enough people to keep the label going of just A-lister people? Well, I mean, we knew right away that there's only so many like Frank Miller's, mm -hmm. you know, left in the business. We, we knew that we had to open it up. So it was just, this wasn't like a big fight. It was just sort of in the initial conversation was let's, let's put together some names, some concepts and show them to Jim and Dan and, and say like, this is where we think this label can go. And they were uh, generally very, very supportive of it. I can tell you that in the case of Stefan Sajic's Harleen, somebody in sales and marketing didn't think he was at the level quote unquote of, you know, some of these other people in terms of his fame, not about his talent. It was about, you know, his a perception of his marketability. But I took that work to, to Dan DiDio, and Dan said, of course, we should do this. And that was also the case with um, Jim Lee and Daniel Warren Johnson, where I said, you know, I showed him his work, and Jim was like, we should don't totally do something with this guy, see what he's got. They were very supportive of taking those kinds of... Um, Risks is the wrong word because these guys aren't risky guys. Like the work is manifestly great, uh, but it's not necessarily what you would put in the mainline shared universe books, which are sort of a, there's, I think there's market expectations about what those books look like mm -hmm. and, and also how often they come out and the type of work they do. I think readers expect the shared universe books to have a kind of, well, shared universe, frankly. And these guys, you know, we're doing something really idiosyncratic, and Black Label was a place to do that. So now you see 
guys like Christian Ward, Phil Jimenez, and Kelly Sue DeConnick, like all that stuff is sort of coexisting. You have these very, very big names and also people who are not as big sort of in that way, but are just as talented and, and doing incredible stuff. And I think the label's been very successful. Certainly the DC books I did at Black Label have been very successful. You know, com- when I say that, I mean commercially, like they've, they've done very well. That was sort of the mission is to make like really high quality prestige stuff that is also perennial potential stuff that will sell forever, like an all-star Superman or a Dark Knight Returns or a New Frontier, things like that, which any person can pick up and recognize, you know, the the character and, and read a complete story about the character. Because in the case of all of them, Batman Damned or Wonder Woman Historia or even Wonder Woman Dead Earth. The character at the center of those stories, even though the stories are not in continuity and sometimes they take place in far-flung settings, the character is still basically the classic version of the character. Like, these aren't Elseworlds in the sense that, like, there aren't Black Label books where, like, Batman's a pirate or, or Superman lands in Russia. Like, these are still basically, like, the, the characters most people would know, just put in, you know, sometimes very uh, challenging situations. Like, in the case of Wonder Woman Dead Earth, it's Wonder Woman wakes up at the end of the world, you know, but she's still a Wonder Woman. Harleen, you know, is a sort of cinematic and more, you know, in-depth character, character-based look at Harley's origin, but it's still recognizably Harley Quinn. So that was what Black Label was meant to be. And also, um, so we were doing Black Label and the new Vertigo. And the new Vertigo also included the Sandman universe, which was the first time that Neil Gaiman would be directly involved in curating a line of Sandman spinoffs. And that was also very exciting. And of course, we were absorbing um, Young Animal. I wasn't involved in Young Animal at that stage, but I was involved in doing some Vertigo books, which when I say Vertigo books, I mean original IP books or creator-owned books, things that are that are not legacy books or as distinct from Sandman books. Um, and this would have been like 2017, 2018. Vertigo had had still been publishing lots of creator-owned material, but the market had changed, and there's a lot of you know what what Vertigo used to be the only place to get certain type of content has now you can get it a lot of places. Yeah. So it didn't have the market presence it once did, and at that time, DC was very excited about trying to do like a big push for Vertigo again uh, with a bunch of new books and the Sandman. The Sandman is not creator-owned. It's effectively creator-owned, but it's actually a DC property. Um, Mm -hmm. um, So this was an interesting time for me because I had come to DC to do DC stuff. There had been Vertigo editorial openings before that I didn't pursue because I wanted to do DC characters. So, uh, and this was my you know, first experience with a phenomenon that a lot of people experienced at that time, which was when you do something very successful, again, this is at that time with that management, you would be rewarded by being given something very, very difficult and, um, and not necessarily what you wanted to do. In my case, I had just um, been assigned Aquaman, which had been going as under DC Rebirth for a year or two, I forget now. Um, And uh, I had a hole in my schedule, so the existing editors were like, Andy, you need to take this book. That's not uncommon. 
you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation. And I was happy to do it because Aquaman's uh, interesting and challenging. And I had, had, you know, I had sort of found my niche in DCU by taking these supposed, you know, lower-tier characters because you can you can sort of stretch them in ways you can't necessarily with like the top tier characters mm -hmm. because there's a lot of ex expectations. So I hired um, Stephen Sajic, who I later worked with on Harleen, to do all the art, the color and art. And um, and the writer, Dad Ab Dan Abnett, and I decided to take um, a sort of Game of Thrones underwater approach to Aquaman. And... Um, the first issue of that was an issue 25, so it was something we could market very well. And and Sedgwick's artwork was just so different and so striking and painterly and beautiful. And uh, sales went up. And Dan DiDio did this rare thing where he had me and Brian Cunningham, my group editor, come down to his office. And we were like, oh, God, what's going to happen? We're, we're going to be in trouble. Because Dan never does this. He never says, come on down. And he had, he said, I love this. I love what you guys did with this. This is great. And you're like, oh, wow. And then in a week, I found out I'm moving to Vertigo. <laughs> so, um, you know, you make, you do something good, then they give you something harder to do, you know, and it's like a vote of confidence, but it's also like, oh, it's a, it's a challenge because there were just many market challenges for Vertigo. I mean, really simply, Vertigo books um, were selling at basically the same level as books like them from other publishers like Dark Horse or Image, um, the comparable creators. But they're much more expensive to make at DC because DC has so much overhead. There's editorial, there's marketing, and there's design, and there's and, and, and DC pays page rates for everything. You know, there's mm -hmm. no no creators, no creators go out of pocket at DC at DC, which they sometimes do at other places, you know. Um Especially like you know indie books where they they front everything the and the and the the publisher is a gets it published you know the publisher doesn't pay them their rates and things like that and so uh, and and usually on that deal the the creator's the last one to get paid after everything's you know on those the that too after all the money's been recouped but DC's paying everything up front on a page rate right. so putting out a lot of money. And putting out a lot of money and the market for that kind of material is just what it is. Like there's, there's a good market for that material in the backlist and trade paperbacks. There's a good market if there's something turned into a TV show and things like that, you know, and there's also a good market in periodicals. If the overhead is low, like a lot of people make a really good living doing books that sell, you know, between five and 15,000 copies, which aren't, which is not a lot by DC yeah. or Marvel standards, but um, but it is a, but it's not a lot if you're spending DC or Marvel money. So it's it's interesting, like because I'm I'm sort of remembering this. You know, they they, they decided to uh, what they call sunset the Vertigo brand mm -hmm. along with DC, DC Zoom and DC Inc. because there was a management change at the studio and the new boss didn't like the notion of imprints. It was just some. It was a, it's a publishing tradition that they just didn't really appreciate. So they wanted everything to be called DC. So um, that's why everything was sort of consolidated under a black label. But there were still, even after that change happened, there were still as many creator-owned books and Sandman books published as there were at, at Vertigo. It, 
was just a it was just a a name change. Um, I don't know about since then, since I've been gone. I'm not sure, but um, but all the Vertigo books that I was doing were inherited from the previous Vertigo editors, and with the exception of two, I brought in two original things that were completely mine and everything, which were high level, which was written by a guy called Rob Sheridan, who would come from the Nine Inch Nails camp where he was a creative director and did a lot of alternate reality game stuff as well as design and art direction. And the other one was created by, it was called Goddess Mode, created by Zoe Quinn, who came from video games. And uh, the other books I did were um, pitches that had already been sort of floating around or had been approved. So I was already feeling like, kind of on the back foot a little bit when I got there, but I decided I was going to relish the opportunity to try to do creator-owned books because it's a completely different challenge than doing a shared universe book because you have to build everything from scratch. It's an enormous creative challenge uh, to, to, you know, because you could set almost anything in uh, Gotham City. The reader understands Gotham City, you know, or to, to expand it, World War II, like you can set almost any kind of story against World War II and the audience will sort of have a sense of where you are in time and space and, and, and the circumstances that surround the, the drama and the story. But when you're doing an original science fiction book or an original horror book, you kind of have to invent everything, you know, to, to, to immerse the reader in that stuff. So that was a really fun challenge. Um, and I worked with some really good people. I staffed all the books in terms of artists and things like that that I was handed. Um, the first one I did was a book called Motherlands, which was a pitch from Simon Spurrier. I did, um, well, I did a handful of things. And they were all, you know, like I said, they sold comparable to what books like them sell at other, at other publishers. Just to roll it back a little, talking about the executive change at Warner Brothers Studios, and I was talking to another editor about the DC reasons for the word out was that uh, Paul Levitz did a great deal of protection for DC. And it, and the moment that he left it, you know, Warner brothers started looking at, you know, how much money were these characters, you know, was this publisher bringing down for us? And it seemed like <clears throat> there was a need to drive sales one way or another, or be sales oriented. And you know, like with vertigo, these books that you're, talking about that sold well, you know, if you were an independent creator with a, a, you know, something, an image, and maybe had two or three going out there, you'd be working hard, but you could make a living, like what you're saying. But the studio executives at Warner Brothers weren't willing to wait for these books to recoup their monthly expense, because I always heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Vertigo made its money at way back in in the long tail of the collection, that because of how Karen Berger had set things up and the marketing and publishing had changed for comics, that you could have a long tail with a collected series, you know, a trade paperback, you know, people could eventually discover something and the money would come in. It would slowly come in. So a lot of Vertigo books maybe made their money back or, or made money for the publisher, but you had to be willing to wait for a while for that to happen. And you just weren't getting that from the studio, from the, the owners, the, the suits and on the lot, right? Well, okay. There's a few things. There's a few things in there. First, the studio suits whoever they might be, the lot, whatever. They are not looking at 
the individual sales of any Vertigo book. That's just not how it works. But they're looking like, for just the overall. There and DC was and is profitable. Yeah. Um, and you know DC is given a number to hit every year and they hit it. You know, uh, that's not an issue. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, internally, you know, it's like a question of resources. You know, like I, I think, and this is just me talking. Like I think if DC isn't going to you know, invest in a creator-owned situation where the book can go like 12 to 24 issues or something and, you know, build a build an audience and build a big story, then maybe, you know, it's it's a hard it's a question you have to ask, like a like a like an effort to to reward kind of situation, you know. But it, there's no there's no sort of like overlord who says like stop making vertigo books or or I want these vertigo books to sell better or anything like that. It's not, or even DC books, like the, the, the publisher and the characters and everything has been self-sustaining for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Like there's nobody on the lot who's like, who's sort of doing the the thing that you, in, in, you know, imagined just now, like that's not something that happens. If, if the company is losing money, that's different, but the company doesn't lose money. The publishing company, it's just a question of internally. It's a question of strategy and, and, uh, allocating resources and things like that. I don't know about the Karen Berger era. I didn't work in it. I do know that for the most part in my years at DC, books that didn't sell great in periodical didn't sell great in trade. There were some exceptions, like, and I'm sure there always have been exceptions. For example, the Omega Men, the book I did with Tom King, sold very poorly by DC standards in periodical. But trade went to the new york times bestseller list in the first or second week it was out so because it had built up this sort of reputation as a great read and it's one of those things people decide to wait for the trade for and i'm sure there's examples of that throughout dc history and it's probably vertigo history in particular but i couldn't tell you with any authority i'm just not sure about the burger area that's it seemed to me that that there was a lot of vertigo backlist back then though but also the market was very different like i'm reading old Vertigo books right now, like Sam and Mystery Theater, which goes to 70 issues. And there's just like no way that would happen now. Comics are selling quite quite well now, but like the market, the nature of the market is different. And I don't know that it would support that book. Not to the tune of 70 issues, you know? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. Um, that's a great run, but you're right. I agree with you. I, I read it and uh, yeah, it probably might've gotten two years maybe <laughs> nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Black Label published this Hellblazer book under the Sandman Universe banner, 12 issues of Hellblazer by Simon Spurrier and Aaron Campbell. Uh-huh. That is probably the best Hellblazer since Garth Ennis, and it, uh, it only lasted 12 issues, you know, in, in this market because it's an esoteric thing. It's, it's, uh, it's dark. It's... It's not a, a big genre book, you know, even with the Sandman thing. It's it's just the market has changed for that kind of thing. I suspect it reads better as a collection, and hopefully it'll, you know, be something that, that uh, remains on the shelf as a collection. But, yeah, it's just different. There's sort of a ceiling for non-superhero books in the direct market, by which I mean singles, periodicals, comic book stores. And some stuff just certainly goes beyond it. Like, there's... 
we all know about the Walking Deads and the sagas and, and the things like that for sure. Mm-hmm. And the Sandman, the Sandman universe line was very successful. Like all the, the new books they did were The Dreaming and Lucifer and um, House of Whispers and Books of Magic. Like that line was very successful. Kind of like what happened to me. The editor who was taking point on that line got moved to another group after that was successful. You know, that stuff kept happening. You mentioned that you were curious about Young Animal. Like the, I became involved in Young Animal because, again, I had a whole in my schedule, and they needed someone to edit Collapser, which was a pitch that had already been around. There was already an art artist assigned to it. Um, it was sort of my job to just get it done. I you know, did that book, and the, one of the writers on that book was Mikey Way, who was Gerard Way's brother. Mm-hmm. And he told, he told Gerard that, um, you know, I'm really happy with the job Andy's doing on this book. And Gerard asked that I... Um, to sort of take point on the rest of the line, which which at that point was still in development, which was the forthcoming Doom Patrol, the next run of Doom Patrol, which was Far Sector, yeah. Eternity Girl. Kate Carson, I think, had a second run too. But I don't know if that uh, that might have. It did, but it wasn't. That wasn't me. Okay. Um, so that's how I became involved with Young Animal, and um, my challenge, the challenge given to me by Mark Doyle, was. Make Doom Patrol ship on time. Yeah, there was, was a lot of issues with the first one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot. So, so working with... Uh, I'm really, really happy with how that turned out. I really liked working with Gerard and all the artists and Gerard's co-writer, uh, Jeremy Lambert, because um, we were able to sort of sit down and strategize a story that would facilitate a different artist for every issue. Mm-hmm. and get those scripts written in advance and have them all being worked on simultaneously. And um, and the, some of them, I think, are the best work of those artists' careers at that point. Like, there's a Doc Shaner issue. There's um, a Becky Cloonan issue. There's a Nick Pitara issue. Of course, there's a Nick Darrington issue. There's, there's a fantastic um, issue drawn by a guy called Omar Francia, who who did the impossible. Gerard wanted something that looked like really primitive 3D computer graphics from the early 90s, something almost like that Simpsons 3D episode that you might remember. Mm-hmm. And, like, people are trained not to do that. You know, like, it's... The the technology and the artistry has evolved so much, and this guy was able to make these, like, really primitive 3D characters when the, when the Doom Patrol goes into, like, a cyberspace world just an impossible ass that he's able to do. Like, so many people did impossible things on that book, and it's it's gorgeous and beautiful, and we got it all out on time except for the last issue, which was the Nick Darrington issue. Um, I but, forgave you guys for that one. I, I, I was reading the whole run, but yeah, it was like, <laughs> the, first, I, the first run was a little like, wow, when's it gonna come out? <laughs> you know, but Seven wasn't that, that late. It wasn't that late, <laughs> you know? That's an example, though, of something I think that happens to editors, or at least happens to me, is where you find yourself working on a book that maybe you wouldn't have chosen, but it ends up being a really great experience creatively for you. And because you have to, at least I believe, you kind of have to, like, get into character, to, to, if I can sound a little pretentious about it. Like, you you have to become the first fan who, who reads this stuff, and you have to become the first fan who responds to it. And you have to learn what people like about these things and make sure that that stuff is being pushed to the surface. And 
that's what that's that's sort of where I came around starting with Rebirth on my like Green Arrow book and and Suicide Squad and stuff like that. Like that's that's sort of a, a process, I guess, that I've taken through everything, including the Vertigo stuff that I inherited and also the Young Animal stuff. Um, Bar Sector was definitely up my alley. I had always been like a sci-fi guy at DC, and I had done the Omega Men, and Bar Sector was a space opera, and I had worked with Jamal Campbell on a number of things at DC, and uh, you know, my role in that book was basically to, to first to hire him, and also to sort of adjust the new character uh, of Joe Sojourner, the new Green Lantern, so that when the story was over, she could appear in the DC universe without any kind of question about continuity or anything like that, you know, because I knew that she was going to be someone that the other creators wanted to use. And I, I didn't want, because it was young animal, I didn't want the, there to be some sort of barrier to entry to reading her story in far sector. Like if you're a DCU reader and you're reading her in a green lantern book or a justice league book, I want you to be able to read far sector without saying this doesn't make sense this isn't how green lanterns work this isn't mm-hmm. you know this this is a continuity thing so that was really my major like contribution cuz cuz nk jemison i think is just so fucking good like it's it, it, i i'm just i'm i'm really just honored to have my name on that book because it was just so strong like everything she did was Sometimes I'd have I'd be reading a script and be like, oh, I have a question about this, and then the next page it's answered. You know, like she, for, for she's the most natively gifted first-time comic book writer I've ever ever seen, and uh, I'm so happy with that the way that book turned out. Um, Did yeah, when you were because it was a young animal book, so it had sort of this own corner. But one thing I did notice, I've only read a few issues. I need to get you know get the trade, but. The whole thing about it being a different Green Lantern was that because it was a, started out as a young, the young animal universe, you didn't have any issues with playing with sort of the Green Lantern mythos, or you know, have a character who's Green Lantern but doesn't really fit within the expectations of what a Green Lantern is, because you're you're playing on that, on that whole location thing you were talking about earlier about setting somebody in a World War II or whatever put a green lantern ring on them and give them a green lantern suit a lot of comic fans know where that's still you know you're not the world building but it sounds like you start world building in a way and shaking up the status quo of green lanterns and plus putting people on a really unique world too i don't think the development of what became far sector was really like based in young animal as a as a concept i think it was Mm -hmm. something gerard came up with and talked to Nora about on his own and really that's why it ended up at Young Animal because it originated with Gerard. I don't think it was really I think when you look at it it does seem to stand apart from the other Young Animal stuff because the other Young Animal the other Young Animal stuff is very weird, mm-hmm. you know, esoteric and which is not the stuff that I'm usually, you know, drawn to to doing, but I was really I had a good time working on it and I'm glad that I did and um but Far Sector was something that I thought could have been a DCU book or a, or a Black Label book, and I don't want to I don't want to speak for for their like motivations in creating it. But what I thought was really cool about it was it sort of answers the promise of a Green Lantern of the premise of Green Lantern, which was 
a human being out in the cosmos having to solve crimes or, or or something like that, which I don't know that we'd ever seen in so you know vivid a way before. The premise of the book is there's there's been a murder committed for the first time in 500 years, and 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 there's only you know 500 billion suspects. Mm-hmm. And uh, the character of Joe, you know, is is rooted in like I think great classic sci-fi. She's rooted in the now of our world. She's a former NYPD cop. She's a former member of the armed forces who was feeling disillusioned and uncertain. And she was given this chance to make a difference and she decided to take it. And that's what happened. It's very simple in that way. And I, I don't know that like, you know, the green lantern mythology is of course really, really complicated mm-hmm. and you know, good. It's good. It's very good. But there was something really appealing about sent about sending this like lone human being out to this world for a year in story time because it was a 12 issue series. That's as a Green Lantern fan, it was like the kind of thing I wanted to see for a long time. And of course, with the artwork of Jamal is and this, the world building of Nora, it's just it really feels like a true science fiction story as opposed to a superhero story with science fiction elements, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that might not have been able to happen at DCU. You know, that's something that, like, Gerard, Gerard's label was able to give us the, the freedom to do that without really being accountable to anybody. Because if, if it says, like, Green Lantern on the cover and it's selling a certain level or you do something, like, maybe there's not enough fighting in the issue or something like that. Like, sometimes you heard stuff like that from people. You'd be like, this was a good issue, Andy, but I could use, like, a few more pages of action, you know, or, you know, things like that. Like... Those are the kind of, that's sometimes the feedback you get in DCU. So you didn't have to worry about that, that young animal at all. Well, that goes back to like before we started recording about the advice that Mark Chiarello gave you about remember, we're doing stories where Batman punches the Joker, you know, but within that realm, I mean, within that frame, you can do a lot of other things. I mean, can you explain that a little better? I mean, for the audience of like what that piece of advice and why it rings, rings so, I guess, important for you. Yeah. All that work well, you had. To to re- to repeat it for people who don't remember, I said, Mark Chiarello told me, at the end of the day, our job is Batman punches the Joker, and what I interpret that and the way I take that and the way that I apply that is. We can be really creative and we can be really clever and we can be very artsy fartsy if we want to. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that these are stories about superheroes and supervillains. In other words, dramatic stories, adventure stories, that we shouldn't ever lose sight of that. We didn't in Far Sector, and I never I and I always thought about that on the DC stuff I did, like even the black label stuff. You have to remember there's to have these dramatic beats, these dramatic stakes, these big visuals, things like that, like fundamental stuff. And you can you can build on it. You can do something really modern and really cool. Even if you dress it up and disguise it, it's still got to be there. You know, that, that visceral thrill of reading a superhero comic that you hope will make, will fire whatever neuron it is that makes people enjoy them, you know, that makes people remember why they like them or... That's that's how I that's how I take that advice that Mark gave me. Mark may not have meant it in such a deep way, but that's how I applied it. You know, being put in these corners 
you know, coming off of Aquaman, turning Aquaman around and then being given sort of, well, you are going to be challenged by the new assignment that you had because you had too much success. <laughs> but also, and then working on uh, Doom Patrol, which, as you just said, is not something you would, like, raise your hand for if somebody was offering your position, but you found it to be a great experience. How did that inform how you approach editing on the next project, you know, and how you look at editing? Has it, in a way, forced your um, skills and your point of view to evolve in a way that you didn't expect? And did you pick up new things on the way? You definitely pick up new things on the way. I think kind of the job of editing is, is like learning. You have to learn every day, just as a matter of, of course, because you work with so many different people. Um, you know, if you, if you talk to creators, they'll talk about sort of the, the singular focus and even isolation of working on a long-term assignment, especially artists who have to just draw page after page after page for, for a year or two. But editors jump from book to book from minute to minute throughout the day, throughout the eight-hour day, every day. You have to change your approach for every project and every person on the project. So I think it makes you a pretty well-rounded storyteller. I feel very fortunate that I've been able to do weird little superhero books like Omega Men, but also like big superhero books like Justice League versus Suicide Squad and Suicide Squad and Green Arrow and Aquaman and stuff like that. But I've also done original things at Vertigo where I had to work with creators to build something from scratch. I feel like I got to work with Gerard Way, who's a really, really creative, interesting person and a great collaborator on these like really esoteric things and also these really sophisticated, like high-minded science fiction things. And then I got to work with Brian Bendis on the Wonder Comics line, which was a really like youth-oriented, like really fun, uh, vivid type of book like i i feel like and i got to do a little bit of sandman too like i got to work on the lucifer book um with dan waters who's like a really amazing writer and the famara brothers who are really amazing artists but again it's not like it's not like superhero stuff it's stuff that I, maybe i wouldn't have done otherwise and it was my bosses at dc who thought that i would be good at it the lessons you learn on one project inform the other because to do a book like a lucifer or 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 a far sector or or Doom Patrol or Young Justice, you kind of have to you have to do a lot of research and you have to do a lot of thinking and a lot of conversations, strategize what you want to do and how you're gonna approach this stuff. So there's a lot of thinking and there's a lot of talking that and that's how you learn. That's how you you grow and expand your skill set and your tastes as well. Um, one of the things I really admire about Mark Doyle and my what I really liked about working for him was he was very experienced, much more than me, and he said to me about some stuff that I wanted to do at Black Label and, and did do at Black Label. He would say things like, you know, this isn't my cup of tea, but I know enough to know that somebody will really, really like this, and I trust you, and, you know, go do this. And that is, I think, maybe a uniquely editorial point of view, like a, like a point of view you come to because you've done so many different types of things and seen so many different types of things in the market, you know, that you may not have cause to pay attention to or experience in a different role, because you just, why would you? That was, that was a great um, example 
you know, that Mark set in that way that, um, you know, should I ever find myself in a managerial position again, uh, that I would definitely like, you know, use him as an example in that way, because having done all these things, I can see, like I mentioned, like Doom Patrol wasn't necessarily the thing I would have chosen to do, but having done it and having seen the rewards of it, personally, professionally, commercially, I could say, yes, this is something valuable. So I'm glad that I had that experience. Um, and again, I'm really, really proud of it. I, I, uh, I had the same experience on Green Arrow too. Like Green Arrow was the book I sort of uh, was assigned and I was never a big Green Arrow guy, but now I'm like the Green Arrow guy. Like I love <laughs> Green Arrow so much because I think that you kind of have to, like, at least that's my process. Like I have to become like, the biggest fan of this thing to, to do it. And, uh, and that's, that's what I did to everything I worked on at DC, even the creator owned stuff. Like I have to become the biggest fan of it. So, not, I want, so I can, so I can try to make it as good as I can. You're not only the first reader, but you're also the biggest fan in a way that you will defend it or promote it, you know, <laughs> everywhere is in sort of a way for, well, you have to, yeah, you definitely have to defend the book. Maybe defend is too strong a word, but mm -hmm. internally you have to sort of fight for the book to get its due. When, when you inherit someone else's book, it's that's already in progress. It's different than when you inherit like a pitch or something. Like some of the Vertigo books I inherited were already approved pitches that we were going to do, mm -hmm. but it was still up to me to develop them and, and execute them. But if you inherit someone's book that's already up and running, you know, you're never going to like, I don't know, like I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're going to treat it with as much love as it was something that you did on your own. I mean, fortunately, I never, I never had to inherit someone's book under the circumstances. The only one I did was probably Aquaman, and that had a market, you know, justification for changing because issue twenty-five was coming up, and that's, you know, that's a good time to sort of say like issue twenty-five, new direction, you know, that kind yeah, of thing from the ground but, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, like you do you learn things that roll over into the next thing? Absolutely, at least I did. With all this experience you've had and a very eclectic approach, uh, I mean, a eclectic experience, really, with different titles and also coming from reporting in comics, what's the next stage of uh, your career? Where do you take all this wealth of knowledge and experience? Well, at the moment, I'm editing uh, some books for that are going to be published by Image Comics or are being published by Image Comics. Great. Um, which is... A completely different experience um, because image is such that you really have to, like as a creator, you have to make all the decisions, like things I never even thought about at DC because we had so much, you know, just such a well-oiled machine around us. Like how much does the book cost? What paper is it on? You know, where um, you have people reminding you when they need assets, you know, when they, when they need, it's, it's, it was just a whole new learning curve, which is again, part of the fun of the gig is learning to do things a different way. Like, and I'm working, the, the book I'm working on that's out is called curse, sorry, sins of the black flamingo. And, um, it's by, uh, Andrew Wheeler and Travis Moore. And, um, it's a, an occult, um, cat burglar story set in Miami. It's sort of like Michael Mann meets Hellblazer. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty cool. And, uh, and I've got some other things I, I 
I don't know that I can't talk about, but they haven't been announced, so I just don't know because that's because I'm working for creators now, so it's like I don't I can't really like elect to say things about those books yet. But I think um, you know it's just historically X DC editors become uh, comic book writers, and that's something I'd like to try, um, particularly now that I've seen um, what it takes to to make a book at Image and other places, you know, it's, and also how to, how to make a book at DC. Like, I feel, I feel confident that I could uh, do something, you know, whether I'll turn out good at it will remains to be seen, but cause not every editor is necessary. Like, even if you're a good storyteller, it doesn't mean you're a good writer, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. Uh, but I don't know. I, I want to try that. And um, there's a, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of. I've 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 done some stuff that I can't talk about. I'm not trying to be coy or mysterious or something like that. But like, I've done some things that are like DC related, uh, behind the scenes, for like other companies, you know, and that are DC partners. And I don't know that I can talk about them just because I'm not sure what the nature of, of those things are, like consultant types uh, of things. I don't want to get you in trouble because I've heard yeah. stories, you know? You know? Yeah. Uh, but I'm not, I'm honestly not trying to be like, you know, isn't it so annoying when you see people online and we're like, I'm doing something really cool I can't tell you about, you know? Like, you think, no, you're not. <laughs> uh, I know, I'm keeping busy and I hope to have some more stuff to talk about. But, but um, it's just whatever I do, it will be because I had this job at DC yeah, and, and worked with the people I worked with. And I'm still very close to the, the people who work there. And I think they're, you know, a lot of them who are now like full editors when I started there were junior editors or assistant editors. And I'm just really, really impressed and uh, happy with their output. And I think, you know, I think it's, it's. I think it's probably a great time to be an editor at DC, and uh, I'm very, very grateful that I got to do all the different things I got to do there. It's, uh, it's been just kind of a dream gig. You know, like you mentioned, I'd been in the uh, comics reporting field before. Like that's a, that's a tradition I'm proud to to be in. You know, that's how Roy Thomas and Paul Levitz, mm-hmm. you know, got into the business too. Not not that I'm comparing myself to them, but I, I I do like that that's a a path, you know, footsteps I could follow. And um and then I, I mentioned before, I got to work with so many like heroes of mine, like Mark Chiarello and Mike Harland and and also just like really good contemporaries. Like I think Chris Conroy, who's editing the black label group and Sandman stuff now is such a strong, you know, creative voice there. And Marie I think Marie J. Evans is a fantastic storyteller and editor in chief. Like I'm, I don't know. I like, I still really care about those people and about that work. And uh, every day, you know, readers will tell me on Twitter about something I worked on that, you know, meant something to them. And I think some people think that like, Oh, art, you know, can change the world and stuff like that. And I don't know if I believe that, but I do believe like you can have an intimate experience with art as like an individual and it can maybe entertain you for a moment or inspire you to do something or make you think about something. And, you know, that is 
you know, creatively, that's like the measure of success, I think, when it comes to like the audience, you know, because like you can you can feel successful about something you've done on your own terms or, or within your team. And then there's also the commercial aspect. And then there's the audience reaction aspect. And if someone feels just like, wow, I, I enjoyed that, that was worth my money, that was worth my time, or I feel good about myself for reading that, or I just feel entertained, that's great. And I get that every day. And I wouldn't have if I hadn't been a DC editor. Not to sound sort of cliche, but like it's a great blessing. I'm very, very lucky, especially something like Batman 89, which I feel like I was put on this earth to work on <laughs> with Andrew Marino and Joe Quinones and Sam Hand. Seeing you're a new guest, I have to put you through the lightning round. I think you've you've listened to a couple other episodes, so you know what you're about to get into. Are you would you be up for that? I think I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> so uh what creator, living or dead, would you like to edit or wish you had a chance to have edited? Probably Darwin Cook. Um, although I don't think I would have presumed to edit him as such. Uh, he's, he was a master storyteller. Uh, but I really would have liked to have got to know him. Um, and I think it would, that would have been sort of a selfish... Sorry, that was my dog sneezing. That would have been a sort of a selfish you know, thing where I think I would have learned quite a lot. But yeah, I think Darwin Cook. What comic have you read recently mm-hmm. that wowed you? I really loved Cliff Chang's Catwoman Lonely City, which was written, drawn, colored, and lettered by Cliff, who yeah. was himself a former DC editor. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, edited by my good friends, Chris Codroy and Andrea Shea. Um, Black Label, I just thought it was just a such a wonderful idea and expressed so beautifully and simply, and I was just sort of blown away by it. I mean, I was I was still working there when the project was being developed, and I'd seen sort of a primordial version of it in layouts and things like that, but the mm-hmm. finished product was just fantastic, and I think it's a perennial that will sell forever and ever. I'm, I was just really blown away by it. Oh, I'm looking forward to getting the hardcover. I've already ordered it, but I just I just love the hardcovers. So I'm just gonna, I was like, I'll wait to get that. While you're working, what do you prefer to have on music, uh, something, the television, radio, a podcast, or just silence? Music. Um, I really I really liked listening to. When I was in the office, I did an experiment <laughs> where. Uh, I would decide what album I was going to listen to. And over the course of an eight hour day, I would, I would get through one album for all the pausing for meetings and little visits at the desks and lunch and all the sort of distractions in the office, which is why I became a big believer in the work from home because you, I think uh, it was, I think I was much more productive at home because there are just so many things that happen in the office. So I, I liked listening to music at the office for sure. Like I would I would decide, well, this week I'm going to listen to the entire uh, Joy Division catalog or George Michael catalog or Vangelis or whatever and, and just keep it on in the background as I work. Definitely love listening to music, but definitely more instrumental help is in, than, rather than sort of pop music or rock music. And what's your favorite comic book convention and why? When I was a kid, San Diego for sure. When you walk into 
Comic-Con, especially in the 90s, before all this stuff that we're talking about was so mainstream. Yeah. It was so validating to see so much celebration of all this stuff that you love and the people who make it. And it was just great, you know, because all this stuff was so cult. And uh, and now it's, it's not like that at all, of course. But uh, as an adult, Emerald City Comic Con, because that, for a long time, anyway, was like, on this coast, the the most like comics comics show, mm-hmm. and I I am often asked on social media like tips for becoming an editor or breaking into the business and things like that. And some of my really good friends and collaborators were people that I hung out with at that show when we were just sort of coming up. You know, you don't network up network laterally network with your peer group because you will all sort of come up together and there are people in comics who I can call for a favor for a cover or whatever, who I was, you know, just a little convention rat with, you know, going to the bar, staying up late, talking comics, you know, like those are, those are the relationships and friendships you make that, that really, you know, make that's where you start to feel like, you know, if, 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 if indeed working in comics is what you want to do, mm-hmm. like those kinds of conventions and those kinds of relationships are the ones that are going to, they're going to make you feel like you're part of something and part of a peer group. And, and, uh, you know, just as you work on your career more and more, you're going to find like those people that you were friends with and came up with are the ones who are going to be there for you. And, uh, and, and, and you're going to, it's it's just a great feeling to know that like you came up together, you you remember like sitting in a sitting in a couch in a lobby in the middle of the night after everyone had gone to bed talking about your favorite comics and things like that. Emerald City was that show for me for sure. That's great. Well, hey, thank you very much. Uh, I think we can just end it right there. That's a great piece of advice, and <clears throat> I Emerald City does seem to be the one that. Everybody I talk to comes back to, and there does seem to be a magic there. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you, Francis. <laughs> this is really fun. 